Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jim Jordan's going to be discussing the names of the descendants of Israel, Jacob and Joseph being reunited, and in chapter 47 of Genesis, Jacob's family settling in Goshen. We really hope that you enjoy this episode and are sharpened by it, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And with that, here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapters 46 and 47 in the life of Jacob. Last time we began chapters 46 and 47, which are really the third trip down to Egypt and the last one. And the next section will be Jacob blessing Joseph and his sons and Jacob blessing all of his sons. That will be the next section. This one starts in 46, 1 to 4, with God telling Israel not to fear to go down to Egypt and that he will meet Joseph there and that God will take care of him there. And it ends at the end of chapter 47 where Jacob comes, or Jacob or Israel, comes to Joseph and makes him swear that he will bring him back up from the land of Egypt. So really, the brothers go down to Egypt, meet Joseph, and then they come back, and then they go back down to Egypt, and they meet Joseph, and Joseph tells them who he is, and they come back, and now they're all going down to Egypt to the land of Goshen, but they're going to come back. Actually, in some ways, all three of these stories have the same arc. And now we're in this one. And last week we looked at God's promise, and as I say, that's matched by Joseph's promise at the end. Then the second section is Jacob's nation transported down to Egypt, and then that's going to be matched at the end in chapter 27 with a section that describes how they're settled. And then we will look at the new organization of the nation of Israel, and that will be matched by a new organization for the nation of Egypt as they sell all their things to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh leases the land back out to them again. And then at the center we'll find the giving of the land of Goshen and moving into the land of Goshen, and at the absolute center of this is Pharaoh being blessed by Jacob. That's the center of this story. And maybe we'll get there today because this doesn't require a lot of in-depth comment. So let's begin in chapter 46, 5 to 7. Here is Jacob departing and going down to the land, the nation transporting down there to be settled. Verse 5 to 7, and I'll read from Fox again. Yaakov departed from Be'er Sheva. Yisrael's sons carried Yaakov their father their little one, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent for carrying him. And they took their acquired livestock and their property that they had gained in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Yaakov and all his seed with him, his sons, and the sons of his sons with him, his daughters and the daughters of his sons. All his seed he brought with him to Egypt. Well, again, we can glance at the fact that there's this by play between the name Jacob and Israel. It's Jacob as an individual here who departs. Israel's sons carry Jacob their father. Israel, as we've said before, seems to be used when the nation is in view and when 
Jacob as an individual is spoken of as the head of the nation. Then we have the word Israel. And so his sons, they're united together with him and they carry him as an individual. And then the emphasis on Jacob and his seed, because again we're looking at the individual person Jacob that the promises were made to and his seed. The only other two things that I would want to comment on here, verse 6, it says they took their livestock and their property. It doesn't say anything about all their servants, but it's hard to believe they would leave them behind. And so it's probable that the word property here includes all of their servants and assistants and those who help them. We know that there are a lot of people here. There have been big bunches of servants right along. I don't see why they'd be left behind to die especially since where they're going is the land of Canaan. There's apparently a lot of land there, more than just a few people would occupy. And then verse 7, we have this curious statement, his sons and his grandsons, his daughters and his granddaughters, and we never hear about any other daughters besides Dinah. And so does this mean he has more daughters? If he has more daughters, why aren't we ever told about them? Because the very next section lists all the sons and daughters who come down to Egypt, and Dinah is the only daughter who is listed. And this says, daughters, plural, went down to Egypt. So what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean daughters-in-law, because it says daughters and daughters of his sons. It wouldn't seem to be granddaughters, because daughters of his sons is mentioned separately. So either Jacob had other daughters, or else this is a formula. It could go either way as far as I'm concerned that this is a stereotyped formula. Sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters. And when we get specific, then it turns out there's only one daughter. But conceptually, it's sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters. That wouldn't be a contradiction if it's just a formula phrase designed to say everything that was his. On the other hand, maybe there were other daughters and they're just not mentioned for some reason. We don't know. That's one of those things that commentators say, gee, we'd like to know more about this, and we just don't. There's no evidence specifically for other daughters. And, of course, what they say is the only reason Dinah is ever mentioned is because of what happened to her. But that doesn't seem to be quite correct either. Something does happen to her, but Leah didn't have time to have any more children than she had, and Dinah is the last one mentioned. So who knows, maybe there were other daughters from the sons of the handmaids and they're just not counted for some reason. I don't know. No one, well, some people know. People who were around back in those days know, but they're all in heaven and we can't ask them about it. Right now, no one seems to know the answer to that question. Well, then we come to this new nation, verses 8 to 27. I call it that because I don't think that this information is just given here as a list of who went down to Egypt. As a matter of fact, it's clearly not. Nowhere near this many people went down to Egypt. We have ten sons of Benjamin here, and Benjamin isn't even old enough to get married yet. And not only that, but only five of these are actually Benjamin's sons. Some of them are grandsons and great-grandsons. They're all listed here. As a matter of fact, some of them aren't even people. If you look in verse 21, Benjamin's sons, Bela and Becker and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Ahi and Rosh, Muppim and Huppim. Well, Muppim... And Huppim are not names. They're plurals. They're peoples. Im. Im always means plural. Seraphim is plural of seraph. Cherubim is plural of cherub. Rephaim is plural of Rapha. Anakim is plural of Anak. 
Muppim and Huppim are not even individual people. They're nations or groups that come from Benjamin. So this is a stereotyped list that's designed to get us up to the number 70. And that tells you what's happening here. We've said before, we're moving in this part of Genesis from individual people and their relationship with God to a nation and its relationship with God. And at this point, Israel is now a nation, and we've had a lot of difficulties to become a nation. We've had brothers fighting each other. We've had God killing grandsons because of their sin, and we've had Jacob and Judah and his difficulties. But God has been forming a nation here, the first phase of national formation, so that 215 years from now, when they come back out of Egypt, they will actually be a nation of Israel. And so Israel is not just a group of people and not just some individuals who go down to Egypt now. The information is presented to us in a very schematic, stylized way in order to tell us that this is a nation. And really, more than that, there are 70 people here. That's the climax of it. Verse 27, all the persons of Jacob's household who came to Egypt were 70. And as I say, some of these people hadn't even been born, so they really weren't 70. But for our purposes, for theological purposes, they're 70. Well, what happened? The very beginning of the Abraham story, Abraham is called immediately after the fall of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is the fall of the 70 nations of the world. Genesis 10, 70 nations of the world. Immediately in Genesis 11, the fall of that world into sin at the Tower of Babel. And judgment comes. And then the very next thing, the call of Abraham. And now what we have here is a new world. The old world comes under judgment in Babel, the 70 nations. Now the number 70 shows up again, and Israel is the kernel of a new creation. It really doesn't come about till we get to the New Testament, but this number 70, this relationship of 7 and 10, is associated with these Gentile nations, and with Israel as sort of the heart of a new creation. And so here at the end of Genesis, starting with Abraham and coming down to this point, We've developed to the point where we can see, yeah, Abraham and his people are the beginning of a replacement for those 70 fallen nations of the world that fell at the Tower of Babel. So there's reasons why this is set up the way it is. And this number 70 is used throughout the Bible for the Gentile nations, along with two other numbers, the number 17 and the number 153. Acts chapter 2, there are 17 nations there. And then, of course, the number of big fish that are caught in John 21 is 153, which is the triangular of 17. Add 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, all the way down to 1, you get 153. So 7 times 10 is 70, 7 plus 10 is 17, 17 triangulated is 153. These numbers are associated with the nations of the world. And here, Israel sort of as the beginning of a new world order. Not only that, but there are internal numerical structures here that we'll see in just a second, emphasizing that this is a symbolic and stylized portrayal. I've got down here, some of these people had not been born. In some places we get great-grandsons and even nations here rather than individuals. 
The purpose is to get the right numbers. We want to get the right numbers in each case because we're setting up a structure here. And there's no contradiction here. Verse 26 says, All the persons who came with Jacob to Egypt, those going out from his loins, aside from the wives of Jacob's sons, all those persons were 66. In other words, all his literal offspring were 66 who went down there with him. That 66 excludes Jacob, because it's talking about the ones who came from his loins, and it excludes Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, because they were already in Egypt. So the ones on the trip who came from his loins are 66. But you'll remember that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek in the loins of Abraham. And so the fact that some of these people hadn't been born, and some of them won't even be born for a hundred years, doesn't change the fact that they are coming down on this trip, considered symbolically or positionally in the loins of their father. So all of that is to say this passage is not designed to tell us precisely what individual human beings made this trip. Although most of these people did make the trip, most of them were alive and they did make the trip. But it's designed to tell us something more that a nation and the beginning of a new world comes down into Egypt where they will be going into this womb of Goshen and then will be born out of the doorways at Passover. Putting the blood around the door and in coming out of it is a birth image. The Bible says you were born at Passover in Ezekiel 16. And you don't need a whole lot of imagination if you know about childbirth to understand why coming through a bloody doorway is a symbol of birth. And so, in a sense, they're going into this womb of Goshen where they'll be nurtured and then they'll be born. And this new world that is coming into being. So let's just glance at the specifics. We ought to read this out loud. I don't want to look at all the details here. There's no real great point in it. Study out all these people and see where else they show up. That would be a different kind of study, and we don't want to do it. But let's just at least read it. First of all, verses 8 to 15 those who came from Leah. Verse 8. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Jacob and his sons. Jacob's firstborn was Reuben. Reuben's sons. Hanak, Pelu, Hetzeron, and Carmi. Shimeon's sons. Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yakin, and Sohar, and Shaul, or Saul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Levi's sons. Levi's sons. Gershon, Kohath and Merari, as we say in English, this is Kehat. Gershon, Kehat, and Merari. Yehuda's sons, Judah's sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Peretz, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan, so they're already dead. All the rest of that story hasn't happened yet. And when we look back at the story of Ur and Onan, we saw that all the events there are going to take us on down beyond this and into later history, but Ur and Onan have already died. They got married when they were 18 or 19 and got knocked off. They probably just recently died. And Perez's sons were Hezron and Hamul. And Yizakar's sons, Tola, Puba, Yov, and Shimron. Zebulun's sons, Sered, Elan, and Yalel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in the land of Aram, and also Dinah, his daughter, and all the persons among his sons and daughters were 33. Now, if you add those all up, they don't come to 33. 
And there doesn't seem to be any answer to this particular question. It's not a mistake. There's no way this can be a scribal error. 33 doesn't look like something else. It doesn't look like 32 or 34. And nobody could have just mistakenly copied one of the letters slightly wrong and gotten it wrong. It's clear that it says 33. In order to get 33 people here, we have to add Jacob to the list. All the persons among his sons and daughters were 33, but that has to include Jacob in order to come up with 33, since Ur and Onan are dead. But since it says all the persons among his sons and daughters were 33, that doesn't seem to work. It seems to exclude Jacob. So what else can we do? Well, we can include Ur and Onan, but then we have to subtract Dinah, that gets us to 33. You can count these up later on. Check me out on this. You'll find it's true. And all the commentators wrestle with this, and no one knows exactly what to do with it. Dinah? Where is she? Middle of verse 15. Yeah, she's there with them. So the question is, you can get it by adding in Ur and Onan, who were dead, just as a list, but then you'd have to subtract Dinah just because she's the only girl. But then it says all the persons among his sons and daughters were 33, so that doesn't work. I think probably the 33 includes Jacob. And that's how we get to 33. There are 32 sons and grandsons listed here and one daughter. And I think we probably have to include Jacob, and that's why it's this way. In fact... I think that's certain. I don't know why I left it so off, but at the end we come to all the persons of Jacob's household were 70. 70 includes Jacob. So clearly Jacob's included here. It's just an oddity of how it's phrased. All the persons among his sons and daughters were 33. I guess we'd have to say as a stereotype phrase because it would mean Jacob as well as his sons and daughters or 33 is actually what the number is. So that's Leah's bunch, and it comes to 33. Then we come to Zilpah, which is Leah's maid, verse 16 to 18. The sons of Gad, Siphon and Haggai, Shuni and Etzbon, Eri, Erodi and Areli. Asher's sons, Yimna, Yishva, Yishvi, and Berea, and Sarah, their sister. So there's another girl. But it's a granddaughter. Emberiah's sons, Haver and Malkiel. And these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban, Laban, had given to Leah his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, 16 persons. Well, we've got 33, now we've got 16, add them up, you've got 49, which is 7 times 7. So this is clearly a stereotype list. One of the things that stands out to me just in what we've read so far is verse 17. The sons of Asher, Yimna, Yishva, Yishvi, Berea, and Sarah, their sister. You think that's the only girl? And none of these other guys had any sisters? That's kind of hard to believe. But I think she's added in to give us 16, so that we can add 16 to 33. Verse 16, Gad has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 sons, no sisters, no daughters, you know, Zebulun has three sons, no daughters. Yissachar has four sons, no daughters. It's as if all of these guys had only sons, and only one of Jacob's sons ever had a daughter. That's just not reasonable. So, again, 
names are included that are important, and I think it includes all the sons because they are the ones who are going to carry the messianic responsibilities in the large sense. And it includes daughters when it's necessary to bring up the count. Well, we've got a nice seven times seven for Leah. Now we move to Rachel, verses 19 to 22. The sons of Rachel, Yaakov's wife, Yosef and Benjamin. To Joseph they were born in the land of Egypt, whom Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of Han, bore to him Manasseh and Ephraim. Benjamin's sons, well here's this list, Bela and Becker and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Ahi and Rosh, Muppim, Huppim and Ard. That's kind of like winking, blinking and nod, only it's Huppim, Muppim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. All the persons were 14. Well, look at that, that's 2 times 7. Well, if we compare Numbers 26, and we're sure not going to take the time to do it, we'll find that Benjamin had five sons. And that these others are grandsons and even great-grandsons. There's more detailed information found there. I've mentioned that here again. we got a number for the purpose of coming up with a significant number. And Rachel is given 14. And then we come to Rachel's maid, Bilhah, and we find seven with her. Verse 23. Dan's sons, plural, Hushim, again that's a plural word. I guess his son was named Hush, and all the people who came from him were the Hushim, the group. And it doesn't say Dan's son. It says Dan's sons, Hushim. They're collected together to give us one name here, because we just want one name. And then Naphtali's sons, Yatzael, Guni, Yetzer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bela whom Laban had given to Rachel, his daughter. She bore these to Yaakov. All the persons were seven. So we add Rachel and Bilhah, and we get 21, which is three times seven. Again, very stereotyped list. There's nothing untrue about it, but the information has been selected. We're not being told everything. We're not being told every single name. It's been selected so that Benjamin has ten. We could have done this differently. We want to make sure that Rachel has fourteen. So, Rachel has fourteen. That's Joseph and Benjamin. That's two. And then Joseph's two sons. That's four. And we got to get ten more, so we put ten of them under Benjamin, which is his five actual sons plus others on down the line. Right, we could have done that different. We could have said Joseph and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh, and let's have one of Ephraim's sons and a couple of Manasseh's sons, and then we'll do Benjamin and seven of his descendants. We could have moved this around and still come up with 14 for Rachel, but for some reason we want to give 10 to Benjamin. Why do you suppose that might be? Why do you suppose that Whoever wrote this, whoever put it in final form, whether it's Moses or Eliezer or Joseph or whoever wrote this and put it in this form, why would they give ten sons to Benjamin, even going down to his grandsons and great-grandsons, in order to make sure he's got ten of them, instead of doing the alternative, which would have been to give a few more to Joseph, carry Joseph's line down a couple of generations and include some grandsons with him and 
give fewer to Benjamin. Why would you want to load up Benjamin? Yeah, because Benjamin is the royal son throughout this whole pericope. Behind the scenes, we got three royal sons. We got Joseph, we got Judah, who shows what a king is by being willing to die for his brothers and is awarded the kingship. And we've got Benjamin, who is the prophesied king. Kings will come from your loins. The next thing that happens, Benjamin is born. Benjamin is given five changes of garments. Remember? And here we have the number ten associated. Benjamin has more than anybody else in this list. See, nobody else has this many. Simeon, verse ten, he has one, two, three, four, five, six. He has six sons. And Gad has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sons. But only Benjamin has ten. The author wanted to inflate Benjamin so that he stands out, even though he's probably not even married yet and none of these are born. He wanted to inflate Benjamin's numbers by going down two or three generations in order to pull it all the way up to ten. Ten is two times five. Ten would stand out as a number of completeness and fullness here. So that would account for it. That's why it's done that way. And we could probably account for other things. Some of it may just fall out by coincidence. Verse 16, Gad's sons, and there are seven listed. Well, Gad is the seventh son listed in this list. Verse 9, Reuben. Verse 10, Simeon. 11, Levi. 12, Judah. 13, Issachar. 14, Zebulun. Those are the six sons of Leah. And then the next one on the list is Gad. He's the seventh on the list, verse 16. And he's given seven sons. And the numerical value of Gad's name is seven. Aleph, Beth, Gimel. Gimel is the third letter of the alphabet. It has a value of three. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. Daleth is the fourth letter of the alphabet. It has a value of four. His name is spelled G-D, Gimel, Daleth, three plus four. The value of his name is seven. He's the seventh in the list, and seven sons are listed for him. Commentators look at that and they say, well, this is hardly a coincidence. You know? <laughs> this has been set out this way. Why? I'm not quite sure. Except that there's a bunch of other sevens here. It's just one other way of calling attention to the number seven in a list that comes to 70 and has this organization where Leah and her maid have 49 together. And then Rachel has 21. All these things are done out in multiples of seven. So these are some of the interesting things that you can see if you push in. That's all that I've seen. And I did look at the commentators to see what secrets might be found here. But those are a couple of them. And I think the tenfold for Benjamin is particularly important in the way this is put out. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, this is the kind of thing that critics say. You see, well, this isn't really history here. This is obviously put together in a stylized way, in order to communicate the symbol of the number seven. But, hey, who knows if these people ever really lived? It's just the message. Yeah, if we assume that Genesis was written by Moses or in Moses' day, then these people had been born by this time. So none of these names take us down beyond the time of Moses. If we assume, as I do, that Genesis was written before Moses and that it was available to the people while they were in Egypt as sort of their Bible, 
then some of this probably was added in later on and this part was completed. There are other things in Genesis, we'll come to one soon, that are obviously added in later. When we looked at the kings of Edom, the last king listed in that list of kings reigned during the days of Solomon. So the Holy Spirit continued to inspire prophets to tinker with these earlier books to bring them up to date until they came to their final form. But the initial form was inerrant and inspired. It's just that more inspired stuff was added later on. So when was this put out? This list could not have been made by Jacob because some of these people hadn't been born. This complete list and its structure would have to have been put together a couple of generations later. Uh huh. They were knew that much about the at that time. Oh yeah. Oh no, these people knew numbers very well. Number lore and star lore, they're very ancient. That's the kind of things that priests knew all about. Priests know about numbers. If you're a scribe and you're a priest, you know about stars, you know about numbers, you know about architectural proportions. That's standard stuff. And a lot of it was regarded as secret stuff. Of course, in Israel it wasn't a secret. It was just a matter of expertise. But you had to know the sky pretty well if you were a priest because you had to be able to tell when the new moon was and when the month started and when the year started. All of that was determined by the sky. And it was determined by the vernal equinox. And you had to know that stuff. So they knew numbers. Yeah. It showed they were, they were very intelligent. Oh, yeah. They were smart. They didn't know how to use computers. When you have a limited number of things to learn, you learn them real well. <laughs> As time goes along, knowledge becomes more specialized. Well, let's see. I guess we can go ahead and introduce the next section, which is a little bit longer, 46.28 to 47.6. It crosses the chapter. Let me read it, and then we'll look at the organization, and that'll probably be all the time we have. Verse 28. Now Judah, he had sent on ahead of him to Joseph. Jacob sent Judah ahead of himself to Joseph to give directions ahead of him to Goshen. When they came to the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot harnessed and went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen. And when he caught sight of him, he flung himself on his neck and wept on his neck continually. And Israel said to Joseph, Now I can die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up so that I may tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds of flocks. Indeed, they've always been livestock men. And their sheep and their oxen, all that is theirs, they have brought along. And it will come to pass when Pharaoh has you called and says, What is it that you do? Then say, Your servants have always been livestock men from our youth until now, so we, so our fathers. In order that you may settle in the region of Goshen, because... Every shepherd of flocks is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph came and told Pharaoh, and he said, My father and my brothers, their sheep and their oxen, and all that is theirs have come from the land of Canaan. And here, they are in the region of Goshen. Now from the circle of his brothers he had picked out five men and set them in Pharaoh's presence. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is it that you do? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds of flocks, so we, so our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, It is to sojourn in the land that we have come, for there is no grazing for the flocks that are your servants, 
for the famine is heavy in the land of Canaan. So now pray, let your servants settle in the region of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. In the best part of the land settle your father and your brothers. Let them settle in the region of Goshen. And if you know that there are able men among them, make them chiefs of livestock over what is mine. This is one section, and we can see it by a couple of things. Number one, the word Goshen is repeated seven times, and it doesn't come up again. The next time we're told about where they're living, it's called the region of Ramses, which is one of those anachronisms. That's come in from a later time. But we stop using the word Goshen. So Goshen piles up here seven times and creates unity, and it's also structural unity in that there are basically four panels of things that happen. And they all basically do the same thing. And I've got that here. Judah and Jacob arrive in Goshen in chapter 46, 28 to 30. And then Joseph says that he's going to go to Pharaoh and he's going to say, My brothers and my father's household have come. And you are to ask for Goshen. And so Joseph comes to Pharaoh and he says, My father and my brothers have come from the land of Canaan. And then they ask for Goshen. And then Pharaoh says, your father and your brothers have come to you, so live in the land of Goshen. This is so stylized that among all the things that they said, these repetitions serve to mark out the four events here, and they're so similar in many ways that they help to unify the passage. Well, there's not a whole lot, actually, that needs to be commented on here. Verses 28 to 30, it's interesting that Jacob sent Judah on ahead to Joseph. Judah has now emerged as the mediator, the reconciler, the reunifier because of what he's done. It's not that Jacob needs to be reconciled to Joseph, but that, I mean, why would he send Judah ahead? Well, practically speaking, to get directions to the land of Goshen. But the fact that it's Judah and not just he sent one of his sons ahead or he sent some of his sons ahead, but he sent Judah, I think, again, has to do with what Judah has become. He's the one who brings them together because of his willingness to die for his brother. And so then Israel and Joseph meet and they weep on each other's necks. And so now there's unification here. All the disunity that this story started with, stage by stage, the people have been reunited. Joseph separated from his father. Jacob separated from his sons, the sons at odds with each other. Step by step, it's all been reunified. And then this life and death thing comes up again in a different way in verse 30. Now I can die since I've seen your face that you're still alive. Well, Israel has been saying right along, Jacob's been saying, I'm going to die. You take Benjamin off, I'm going to die. You bereft me of my sons, and all I can wait to do is die. But it's a sad death, a sorrowful death. But now it's a different kind of death, a death that is peaceful. So I don't think this is in the text just to give us an emotional picture of how Jacob felt. We don't need that. We can use our imaginations for that. It's to point us to the notion that there are different kinds of deaths. And, yeah, he's going to die, of course, but it's not going to be in horror and sorrow and pain and misery and despair, but happy and peaceful. Well, then 
you probably noticed that Joseph sets up this plan with his brothers. He tells them how to talk to Pharaoh. He says, you know, you guys are not used to going in before Pharaoh, emperor of the world. Let me tell you how you do it. You do this, you do that. You stand here. You're not at this point. You don't move until they tell you to, whatever. He gives them the whole royal etiquette. And in the course of it, he tells them what to say when Pharaoh asks them. And then when we see them come before Pharaoh, we see that they do exactly what he said. And the language is pretty much the same. And I've got it kind of charted out here for you to look at whenever you want to. Repetition of words, repetition of phrases with slight variations. The plan is for Joseph to go up and to tell Pharaoh and say to him, and we read in verse 47 that Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, and they says, my brothers and fathers have come. They've come from Canaan. Pharaoh's going to say, what do you do? You say that we're livestock men, that we're shepherds just like our fathers. And you ask for the land of Goshen. And in the parallels, maybe give us a hint on something that's odd. The end of verse 34 says, for every shepherd of flocks is an abomination to the Egyptians. And every commentator points out that there's no evidence that the Egyptians ever regarded shepherding as an abomination. Egyptians were shepherds. Egyptians had livestock. It may be that at this particular time in Egypt, these pharaohs didn't approve of this occupation. But if that's true, we don't know when it was, and we don't have any corroborative evidence. But the Bible tells us that in some sense, the Egyptians did not like being around sheep and being shepherds. It probably had to do with the smell. The Egyptians were fastidious. Remember that Joseph shaved himself before he went to Pharaoh. And sheep stink, as you probably know. And it's probably because the Egyptians were fastidious, so they didn't like shepherds. And so the parallel to that is when Pharaoh says, if you got any able men, put them in charge of my livestock as well. It seems that Pharaoh says, we Egyptians don't really like doing this. If you've got men who like to do it, then you take care of my sheep as well. And I think that probably helps explain what this dislike of sheep and shepherds has to do with. Only other things to notice, verse 2, Joseph picks out five of his brothers and brings them into Pharaoh's presence. Why five? Five is the number of power, and the power of Israel is now coming in and subordinating itself to Pharaoh. You wouldn't want to bring them all in. That would be too many. But bring in five as a representative number, that's the right number to bring in to show that we're yielding our power to you. And then we notice in verses 5 and 6 that Goshen is the best part of the land. And I think maybe there's also a hint that Pharaoh is a little bit like Laban, Laban wanted Jacob to take care of his sheep, and Pharaoh is kind of like a better, smarter Laban who says, you guys take care of my sheep, I'm sure it will go well with me. So that brings us up to the center of the passage and eats up all our time, so we'll come back to this next week and proceed further. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.